classroom. I've already uploaded the reading materials for the digestive system. And it's quite daunting. My suggestion to you is read first the general uh, topics. So those would be the chapters that is, uh, that, sorry, those would be the chapters that you are to read the whole chapter. Uh, don't be intimidated by it. You just read it as if you're reading a, a storybook. And then I singled out some diseases and disorders that are quite common that we see in practice. And so that then you will have an idea of what are the different differentials for, uh, say, vomiting and diarrhea and the like. Okay, and you could also, another way to read it also is just read one disorder at a time and just, you know, understand it. It is best to understand rather than to memorize because by understanding how a disorder, um, you know, sets in to the animals, to the individual, then it will be easier for you to remember and not memorize, okay? And with our online classes, I would think that uh, memorization would not be that uh, important as when we did uh, the face-to-face, -face because in face-to-face, -face, usually then we'll be asking facts and figures and you know things that are usually could be memorized by route memory, meaning you memorize it without really understanding. You just know that this goes with that one. And that one will not be that helpful to you too in real practice. So again, it's best to understand it. Now, our this um, class that I'm holding, again, which is not a requirement, is just for me to highlight what I think should be important, although the readings would give you the whole picture of it already. So I would suggest that you do not just depend on what I say here in this audio, but rather read and then listen to the audio uh, just so you know which ones are the more important ones. But that is not to say that the reading assignment is not um, also equally important. It will give you a better whole picture you know, of things. Okay, so let's start now with the digestive system, as I have mentioned. And one of the things that the owners and probably you as an owner, if you already have a pet or has experienced one, would know that when an animal is sick or getting sick, one of the things, first things that you would notice would be a disturbance in food intake, right? And so then you would notice that the animal is not eating or is not eating as much as the animal used to eat. Because hunger and appetite are the things that would indicate if the animal is functioning well and it is part of survival and i have mentioned this before that animals 
are more active at the time when they can acquire more food. Meaning, think of uh, your nocturnal, the nocturnal animals. Nocturnal animals are obviously more active at night, right? And they're more active at night because it is at night time wherein they would have a higher chance of getting food. And this is very, it's clearly seen in, in the wild. Now, of course, with our pets, with the dogs and cats, they are dependent on humans. And so then maybe they would uh, be more active when you are active or when you are also, you know, uh, in the house or thereabouts. So then usually they'd be more active when you're about to eat, when they can hear the clanging of the utensils. And then they're more active because, hey, food is coming, you know, or immediately after that, I'll be eating. So then that is a important sign to know that the animal is well when they have their appetite. So now the difference between a hunger and the appetite, hunger is the desire to ingest food. So it doesn't matter what food it is, as long as it is something that would fill their tummy, that is hunger, okay? So on the other hand, appetite is a desire to ingest a specific food, okay? So the other terms for this is that for hunger, what you're after or where the animal is after is the quantity of food. As long as there's food, doesn't matter if it tastes good or not. While appetite is you're after or the animal is after the quality of the food. And if you think about it, humans, especially those who have, you know, the means to eat three times a day, usually you would have appetite right? Uh, while those who do not, may not have the capacity to eat three times a day, they usually would have hunger, sad to say. So in animals, usually hunger would be what they would be feeling because they really don't know if, you know, um, they're after something. And again, um, appetite for something Maybe, you know, what we would term capriccioso, your, the, the desire to eat a certain type of food. And that is, you know, usually uh, animals would be looking for that, especially when they are not hungry, if you know what I mean. And satiety is the term that is used when the animal has a feeling need. So when their hunger is already, uh, when it's already satisfied, then they have satiety. And this food intake is signaled by the feeding center, which is found in the hypothalamus, obviously in the brain. And it signals this uh, psych psychic drive to search for and ingest food. Now, this signal and this drive is influenced by nutritional status, the concentration of glucose in the blood, and also GIP distension.
such that that when the GIT is collapsed, it's not distended. Usually then the animal would be searching for food, right? So then uh, satiety center, on the other hand, would inhibit the feeding center. Now, anorexia is the disinterest in food. And the primary anorexia results when there is a disease that would affect the feeding center in the hypothalamus. But this is not that common in dogs and cats. Now, usually if the feeding center um, is affected or there's a disease in the feeding center, it may be a tumor to the brain and such other neurologic abnormalities may also be seen, okay? Now, other uh, causes also of disinterest in food would be loss of smell, some psychologic disorder such as fear, anxiety, depression, and this can also be manifested by dogs and cats, of course. Now, secondary anorexia is usually more common. And this is uh, the reason for the secondary anorexia is there's something wrong outside the brain, but it affects the neural and endocrine control of hunger. And usually this anorexia, this secondary anorexia is found together with nausea and vomiting. So what are the, some examples of this secondary causes of anorexia? Could be pain anywhere in the body. So it could be uh, thoracic pain, abdominal pain, musculoskeletal pain, uh, you know, and other organs and also abdominal organ disorders, such as any enlargement, inflammation, neoplasia. Other causes also could be toxic agents, such as drugs, poison, organ failure, and infection. Okay. Also, of course, uh, some endocrine diseases may also cause secondary anorexia. So then this would tell you that when an owner comes in and tells you, Doc, Doc my dog is not eating. Uh, it doesn't like to eat. No matter what I give the dog, it will not eat. What's wrong with my dog? And I would bow to you if you're going to tell the, an the owner, ah, your dog has you know, this disease or that disease. Because anorexia is a very, very general uh, clinical sign. As you can see, it could be anything. It could just be a splinter in the, on the paw, or it could be tumor in the brain, and anything in between. So when, then, when the animal owner comes in and tells you that their, the, uh, their animal is not eating, you have to dig some more. What are the other clinical signs can you see? Another thing also to remember is that there is what we call a pseudo anorexia. Pseudo meanings false, right? So a false anorexia happens when, can anyone 
think of when would the pseudo-anorexia happen? Anyone? False isha. So the desire to eat is there, but it could not eat. When would that happen? Have you have you ever experienced this? Okay, nobody's talking. Maybe something with the mouth or the teeth. All right, perfect. Yes, of course. No, uh, when there is something wrong with the mouth or the teeth or anywhere in the oral cavity or anything that would affect prehension. Prehension meaning the getting of food, okay, or picking up of food. Or it could be anything that would disturb or interrupt mastication. Mastication meaning, uh, mastication, what's the other term for mastication? Chewing, there you go, chewing of the food, right? Or swallowing of the food. So these are uh, some of the reasons, and these are just very general. You can go more specific than that. Like uh, the animal just had surgery well, in the oral cavity, and now uh, you put in some sort of uh, uh, a device on the mouth so that the animal will not use the mouth. So that one, the animal does have the, the hunger, the appetite, for food, but it could not pick it up, it could not chew it, nor could it swallow it. So then that one we call pseudo-anorexia. So the treatment for anorexia, you have to be more specific on what's causing it. And so then uh, address that. So if it's a splinter on the paw, remove the splinter, address the inflammation, and hope fully that's the only cause of anorexia then the animal will start to eat when that the pain is gone you now when the splinter is gone if it's a brain tumor then you may have to go in and remove the tumor but then that it will the hunger for food will not be as quick to come back you no know? you you may have to address other things aside from those specific treatment, you may also want to improve the palatability of the food. Because one of the reasons also could be, you know, the food is not appetizing for them, or uh, there's no odor, they can't even smell it. So because it's frozen, so there's no smell or they, you know, uh, you may have to improve that. Other things also that you may consider would be appetite stimulant. And usually the appetite stimulant may be specific or specifically labeled on the, on the drug that there's an appetite stimulant in it. And one of the more common, common ones would be pizotifen. But, you can also, uh, but it's usually incorporated in vitamin B complex uh, vitamins. So usually you would see or hear that uh, vitamin B complex is one of the more common ones given to animals. You know, aside from all those other functions of the B complexes, you would want to aim for that appetite stimulant. Okay, so another food disturbance is polyphagia or polyphagia, however you want to pronounce that. 
And in polyphagia, you have a ravenous, or the animal would have a ravenous, a hunger. And this one is usually caused by diseases that create a negative caloric balance or an increase in metabolic rate. And more common would be uh, endocrine problems like Cushing's disease, hyperthyroidism, diabetes mellitus, or even primary intestinal malabsorption. But aside from polyphagia, you may also see muscle wasting in the animal. Okay. Again, there is a primary and a secondary polyphagia like the anorexia. A primary polyphagia would be when the satiety center in this case is destroyed. So again, it would have something to do with problems in the brain. Or it could also be psychologic or there is overfeeding. Okay. Secondary polyphagia may happen when, again, uh, as I have mentioned, some of those uh, uh, endocrine problems. It may also be induced by drugs such as anticonvulsants and glucocorticosteroids. Okay. Treatment for this, usually you just have to restrict the diet, probably by the caloric density or the quantity of the food. Okay. Now, uh, other problems that would be digestive in nature, the other two that are more common ones would be vomiting and diarrhea. Okay. Now, vomiting is explained in your reading material and you have to differentiate between vomiting and regurgitation and what's the difference between the two and in your reading materials you have that very nice flow chart on how to uh, distinguish the two but just think of it this way uh, i'm sure I hope it's not fairly recent. I'm sure you have experienced vomiting already. So try to remember that and how it felt. How it felt right before you vomited, when you vomited, and afterwards. And I'm sure you have a lot of descriptions to that. Okay? And that can also and does occur in dogs and cats. Probably more common in dogs okay so there are also uh, drugs that are effective against vomiting and it would have a different um, mechanism of action and usually not all anti-emetics or anti-vomiting drugs would have the same effect you know on a particular problem so you have to understand and go back to your pharmacology books and notes on that. And, of, and you, we would have anti-emetics that are more specific and there would be anti-emetics that are more general or uh, like, uh, what's the term again? Now I'm lost. Wait. So it, there are some antiemetics that are more specific and those that would have 
uh, more broad, there's the term, broad um, anti-emetics. And of course, as with antibiotics, you would rather use the, uh, the specific ones, especially if you know what's causing the vomiting. Okay, so as with the satiety center and the feeding center, the vomiting center is found also in the brain. And it's more specific in the uh, medulla oblongata. And also, when this is uh, stimulated, it could come from different areas of the body, right? So I'm not sure what caused your vomiting. So try to remember that or when did that happen. But for my own experience, uh, I, I grew up in Bukidnon, and Bukidnon is a mountainous region in smack in the middle of Mindanao. And when we do travel to go to Cagayan de Oro, during uh, my younger years, it would take us four hours to travel. And in this travel, it would, uh, we would go through winding roads. And you know where I'm going with this. And the winding road is probably about 50% of the four hours. So you could just imagine. And since I was still a youngster, I would sit at the back of the car. And soon enough, probably like 15 or 20 minutes into our travel, I would start vomiting and vomiting. And by the time I arrive in Cagayan de Oro, I'm already weak from all the electrolytes that I have lost along the way. And this uh, vomiting is uh, what we call what? Motion sickness or seasickness. Even if we're in the mountain, it's still called uh, seasick no? or motion sickness. And this is a neural pathway that came from the vestibular apparatus. And I have to research about this, and I did the research on this and why that happened to me when I was still small. And I learned that it has something to do with uh, the fluid in my inner, inner, in my inner ear that would tell you which one is up, which one is down, or you know. And what I see, my the sensory things that I see in my eyes are not congruent or it doesn't jive with what is being sensed by my inner ear. So that's why it is very unusual for a driver of a car or any transport uh, vehicle to get motion sickness. Why? Because the driver would know, would actually see with their own eyes if they're going left or right or if there's a slight tilt of the vehicle or not. While those at the back portion of the vehicle would only see the back portion of the, of the chair in front of them. And by their eyes, it's just steady, but their ears, their inner ear are actually, you know, sensing the tilt of the vehicle as it turns from left to right. And, you know, with a constant thing and then then it gets wackle. So usually then the treatment, treatment, quote unquote, for that would be to go to sleep. 
Because by going to sleep, your eyes are closed. So whatever your ears are sensing, you know, you can't really see anything unless you dream. But then when you dream, ibang usapan na yan. <laughs> That's a different story. You know what I mean? You know, in animals, this can also happen. You know, they can also go motion um, sickness and seasick with that. And I hope that helps for those of you who still do experience motion sickness. So try to drive the vehicle and you won't go seasick. <laughs> or you won't go motion sickness on that. So this vestibular apparatus would stimulate the medulla oblongata and the medulla oblongata will um, stimulate the specifically the vomiting center receptors and then vomiting will ensue. And in between this, there would be uh, receptors like you've probably heard from, uh, from the facial class, cholinergic, muscarinic, histamine uh, receptor, and serotonin. And all of these things, you know, work around that uh, vomiting center. Okay? So, uh, For that, usually a, a good anti-emetic for emotion sickness would be one that is specific for histaminergic receptor against that. And so then this would be the diphenhydramine. And you're probably familiar with that. And the family of that, no? Di dimenhydronate. So other um, causes also of vomiting would be disturbances in the digestive tract, the GIT. And through the sympathetic nerves, it would stimulate again the medulla oblongata. And the receptors for that would be dopamine and uh, serotonin. And the drugs that are specific for these receptors would be metoclopramide, okay? Metoclopramide. That's why the diphenhydramine would not be effective for vomiting that is caused by a digestive uh, tract disorder, okay? Now, another uh, pathway would be the humoral pathway. And usually, this would be caused by drugs, anesthetics, opioids, and toxins. Also uremia and ketones. And this one would go through the humoral pathway and it would stimulate the CRTZ or the chemoreceptor trigger zone, which is again found in the brain. And in here, the uh, receptors would also be dopamine and serotonin. So then again, metoclopramide would work for that, but diphenhydramine would not. Another, the other one that I was telling you about, which is broad uh, spectrum antiemetic, would be phenothiazine drugs. And phenothiazine drugs would be effective against the most of the receptors, like the uh, cholinergic histaminergic, dopaminergic receptors, and even alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. So this is considered as a broad-spectrum anti-emetic. 
However, this antiemetic is only reserved for those that do not respond to metoclopramide. Another that you may have probably read is ondansetron, and this one would be effective against serotonergic receptors in the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Okay, so ondansetron would not work when um, you have motion sickness. Okay, so those are uh, the things that you have to remember when you're treating vomiting. Again, vomiting may be caused by a lot of different factors. So not just motion sickness, but also um, drugs and even infection, especially of the digestive tract. There was a time that whenever we see vomiting cases in the hospital, we would think immediately of leptospirosis. Uh, and then although we have moved on from that, I think leptospirosis would still be something that should be considered, especially leptospirosis is still quite rampant in our country. Okay. For diarrhea, uh, the diarrhea is what? Diarrhea is caused by a lot of things. Okay, and what is diarrhea? How do you know diarrhea? Or anyone would like to say, when they have diarrhea, what happens? What happens when they have diarrhea or the animal has diarrhea? Or what do you notice? How can you tell if the animal has diarrhea? Anyone? Doc, usually the animal is uh, very dehydrated. Or... Okay, but yeah, before before dehydration though, like when you see it, how will you describe a diarrheic animal? Like before dehydration sets in. Uh, when the fecal matter is too runny. Uh, is? Too runny, like it has no form whatsoever. Or if the food yeah. is digested, mostly. Okay. Under. Yeah, thank you. So when there's no formed... Uh, excreta, right? So which is the general term for whatever is excreted out in the, uh, <laughs> through the anus, right? So it could be that. And so usually that is because of an increase in water in the excreta, or there is an increase in fecal water is how they call it. It could also be when there is a change in frequency. Usually it is more frequent, right? And when there is a change in volume, usually because there's an increase uh, in frequency, it may be just a little or a lot, it would depend. But if you would compare to a normal uh, feces, it would usually be a lot more. No? But the fecal water, the increase in fecal water would what would be, what would give it away, no? at the first instance or when you first see it. And the most common ones for this diarrhea would be parasites in the digestive tract. And I don't know if you have heard of this, that when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. 
Have you heard of that term? I might be repeating this and you might be hearing this from us time and again from your teachers. No? When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. So what does that mean? Because zebras and horses would have hoofbeats. They would sound the same, right? They, you would, even if you haven't seen them yet, you would think, you know, they would exactly sound the same. But then why horses and not zebras? Because between the two, horses would be, and I have to explain this, the horses would be more common than zebras, I would think, but probably not here. And obviously that quotation came from America, I would think, you know. Anyway, so the horses in these cases, in the, sorry, in the case of diarrhea would be parasites. And different parasites would have different uh, manifestation of diarrhea. And it would all depend on uh, the effect of the parasites and also the site of where it is. So you've gone through parasitology already, or probably you're going through it right now. And so in parasitology, aside from the life cycle of the parasite, we are also told where you would find the parasite. Could you find it in the small intestine, in the duodenum, in the jejunum, or is it in the large intestine? Is it near the rectum already? No, and things like that. And that would, inf that would influence what type of diarrhea you would see in the animal. Okay, so uh, one parasite is what we call um, hookworm. And most of these parasites are roundworms, right? So a hookworm is also known as Ancylostoma caninum in dogs. And this can cause uh, tarry to bloody diarrhea in the animal. Tarry meaning it's dark, right? Because ancylostoma would be located in the small intestine. So when the animal is feeding, uh, sorry, when the parasite is feeding from the small intestine, it would cause bleeding. And this bleeding of the lumen, of the in intestine, of course, uh, the blood would be digested as it goes down the tract, so that when it leaves the body, then um, the digestive blood would uh, be colored black. Tari tar, right? Tar is black. Okay, but then if it's quite a lot, then it may cause also some bloody diarrhea, but not as bloody when you see it in other um, causes. Other things that you would also find with Ancylostoma caninum would be anemia and ascites. Okay, and one of the precautionary measures you have to do when you're handling ancylostoma or hookworm infestation in the animal is hygiene for you and also for the household because it can cause cutaneous larva migrants in humans. So you would see that on yourself when you do get it, 
a serpentine um, lesion, meaning it's like snake-like just underneath the skin. So that one may indicate that uh, you do have ancillostoma, cutaneous larva migrants. And then also while it is there, it gets really, really itchy. It's kind of like you drew uh, a snake, a small snake or a worm on your, on your skin. That's how it looks like. It's not based on experience. The experience I've seen on this, I saw it on one of the vet students. And then he was telling me that it's uh, ancillostoma. And anyway, so that's one parasite. Another parasite would be Toxocaracanis. And this one in common terms, we call it, this is just an ascarid. And the diarrhea of this would be mild, but you would have seen on the animal severe anemia, and the animal would be also acetic or pot-bellied. And this one, usually, they are quite big. And when they do happen in puppies, especially puppies that are less than two months of age, puppies are very small. When they do have worms that are like literally spaghetti-like, uh, even if these worms reside in the duodenum, in the small intestine, because of the size of the worm, they would spill out into the stomach. And so then the animal would actually vomit this out. So when you do see worms coming out, you know, in the vomitus of the animal, then even if without looking under the microscope, you would know that this is a toxocara. Now, of course, it also has a zoonotic uh, potential. It can cause uh, ocular larva migrants, also visceral larva migrants, and even neural larva migrants. So again, hygiene among the household members and even with the vet is very important when dealing with this. Okay, Trichuris vulpes is another parasite in dogs. And this is also named, a uh, common term for this is whipworm. And because it is found in the large intestine in the colon, the diarrhea that it would elicit would be fresh blood and mucoid, fresh blood and mucoid. Aside from that, the animal may also have difficulty in, uh, or there would be straining and tenesmus in the animal, and the animal may also be vomiting. One thing to note with trichuris is that the egg is persistent in the environment. So it is best that the owner would disinfect, you know, the area properly or on a regular basis. Uh, I mentioned that uh, trichuris vulpes also is not acted upon by ivermectin. And ivermectin is one of the dewormers that are, uh, that is very common in veterinary practice. So bear this in mind, no? 
Kahit sasabihin man ng owner, Doc, eh, buwan-buwan naman yan, nag-ivermectin, bakit may bulate pa rin? So, you have to check if it's triturees. So, then you might have to give another dewormer against that. Okay. Uh, the other parasite that is common in dogs would be coccidia. And this would be the isospora and imeria species. And usually the diarrhea for this would be intermittent and blood-stained. Now, usually the antibiotics, uh, sorry, the, the treatment for this would be antibiotics or even probiotics. Another also would be the protozoan georgia species or georgia lamblia. And the thesis for this would be large volume, watery, foul-smelling, and mucoid. And for color, it may be light to greenish in color. And that is because the Georgia, uh, they eat bile. No? Or it is, uh, it is closely associated with the bile of the animal. So then that's why it's a bit greenish. Tapeworms may not cause diarrhea, but we'll just include that here because it is something that is also quite common as a parasite, digestive tract um, parasite in dogs. Now, the proglutids of the tapeworms or Dipylidium caninum would, the mature proglutids would go to the anus and crawl out. And as they're crawling out of the anus, then it would cause itchiness on the animal's um, anus. So then usually you would see animals scooting you know, or rubbing their anus on any hard surface. So this any hard surface could be the floor, could be the post, the wall, your leg, uh, the post of the table, you know, and even the bedpost, they would scrub it against that. So when you do uh, see this in the animal, then better check for proglutids. And proglutids would look like a rice grain. And if you look at it closely or you observe it, you know, for quite a bit, then you would see this rice grain uh, elongating and then contracting, elongating, contracting. And that is how they get uh, mobile. No? Or that's how they move around. And also when you do see this, then check for fleas, because the fleas would be the uh, intermediate host for that. So not only will you eliminate the dipylidium from the animal, but you also have to eliminate the fleas of the animal. Questions at this point? Questions at this point? 